Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Welcome to another episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and I am so excited to have you here today and share this amazing interview. Today I'm chatting with Bibi Mayer. Bibi Mayer runs a line of vegan luxury shoes called Cult of Coquette, but her journey got started way back in 2011 when she was in college. Back then, Bibi started selling stuff on eBay. That turned into her running a boutique, which then turned into her realizing that there was a huge gap in the market for vegan luxury shoes. She knew there were a lot of high heels and shoes out there that just happened to be, air quotes, vegan, but that was just because they were cheap to make, and there was nobody out there who was doing it intentionally and was creating an exceptional line of luxury shoes using cruelty-free products. So she decided to give it a go at launching something like this herself. It all started in 2014, and over the last four to five years, she has had some major ups and downs. Bibi has learned what works and what doesn't work. She ran out of money once. She had to go back to work and learn other aspects of the industry. She did some fashion styling. She saved up money to launch again, and in 2018, she relaunched her brand. In our interview today, she shares all of this in her story. Bibi is so raw and she is so transparent in how she has made all of this happen, including the failures, the successes, what she would have done differently along the way. She's done some really smart things now by launching and pre-selling campaigns to engage with her customer and figure out what they really want before she sends anything into production. She's tried to start small, and she's found the right manufacturers to partner with. And she walks us through exactly how she's done this. All of these things, step by step, if you have any interest in starting a fashion brand or launching your own line, or even if you're already doing this, Bibi has shared so many great things that you can learn and take away to apply to your brand and take advantage of learning from her mistakes and doing a better job for yourself. Thank you so much for the interview, Bibi. And thank you so much to each and every one of you out there listening. I'll remind you that if you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review like listener, mover, maker, hip, shaker, who had this to say about the podcast. One of the best fashion and design podcasts out there. Heidi is an articulate, intelligent interviewer. She has great questions, a great voice, and I'm so grateful for the work she's doing and the content she's providing. This girl is going places and I can't wait to see who she'll be talking to next. She is an inspiring human that talks to other inspiring humans, and I absolutely love this podcast. Thank you, Heidi. Well, thank you so much, Mover Maker Hip Shaker. Love that name, and thank you so much for the really kind review. I really appreciate it, and I'm so glad that you have found everything so inspiring and useful. So if you love listening to, I'd be really grateful to hear from you in an iTunes review. You can do that at any time at sfdnetwork.com review, or just scroll down right now if you're listening on iTunes. I would love to give you a shout out on the air here. As always, you can access the show notes by scrolling down wherever you're listening. And in the meantime, let's jump into the interview with Bibi Mayer. Uh, welcome, Bibi, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. Um, can you please start by just introducing yourself and letting everybody know a little bit about you and what you do in the fashion industry? Hi, um, I'm Bibi. I started um, Cult of Coquette uh, in 2014. It's a line of women's cruelty-free footwear. Um, At the moment, we mostly have heels. Um, We're starting our next collection with some shorter heels and flats. Um, And uh, my start in the industry was um, I had a boutique for many years. Mm. So it was sort of a natural transition to do my own thing. So about four years ago, um, I started that when I had moved to Los Angeles and wanted to kind of start a new life and do a brand new business. Ah, okay. So what was your original background in that led you to opening up and running a boutique? I went to school at FIT, uh, Ah. Fashion Institute of Technology in New York, and I studied um, merchandising. I originally 
growing up thought I wanted to be a full-on fashion designer. And then after, <laughs> after high school and seeing how much is involved in that and the stresses of that, I said, maybe I want to do the business side of it. My, my dad is an entrepreneur. My mom is an artist. So I kind of got both sides, equal parts, maybe pushed a little more into the business side. So there's the creative aspect, always yearning, yeah. <laughs> but uh, business kind of takes over. I think, you know, even for people who are fashion designers, they see it's a lot more business involved than the creative process sometimes. It really is. It really is. Um, so, okay, so you, you went to FIT and then you start, you mm -hmm. opened a boutique and like talk a little bit about that and then how that led to the launch of your, your shoe line, Cult of Coquette. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I was born in Los Angeles. When I was eight, we moved to Arizona, to Tucson, um, which is a big college town. University of Arizona is there. So I grew up there, went through high school there, and then um, went to FIT. I lasted about a year at FIT. Uh, by that second winter, I was like, no, I need to get, <laughs> I need to get back to the heat. <laughs> and so at the time, I was selling things on eBay. I would just go you know, to like Chinatown and stuff and buy little things and sell them on eBay. Bay. And it was doing really well. You know, I was going through schools, making me extra money. And um, at some point in there, my dad had bought a building near the university that was, um, he was turning into student housing and the front had store space. So he said, why don't you, I think to get me to come back and be closer, why don't you come <laughs> open a store here? You're doing these things online. It's going well. Why don't you just um, set it up and we'll have somebody run it and you continue to go to school. And then the timing kind of with the winter and at the time it was it was just after September 11th so it was like kind of a hectic time in New York yeah. and I was away from home and scared I thought well why do I need to finish school let me just this is what I'm going to school for to open a store eventually so let me go do it so it was obviously an opportunity I wasn't going to pass up free rent of course at that time so um I went back and I kind of made it sort of I don't know if anyone's been to LA but stores on Melrose sort of it was just going out clothes heels I was catering to the college community so I had that about eight years um and in 2008 I stopped eating meat. So I, pretty much everything I had was what I would call unintentionally vegan, where it was just because it was kind of cheaper items that mm. they just wouldn't use real leathers and stuff. But I became conscious of it. And I, you know, it was a conflict of interest of, you know, against my moral compass to be selling, you know, fur or leather. So I, sure. I made a choice to stop doing that. And then um, I turned that into an online store and moved to L.A., um, this was 2013. Uh, after I was here for a little while, you know, you come to a bigger city, you realize there's bigger things you could be doing. And I saw all the opportunities and I thought, you know, I want to do my own thing. And I had trouble finding, I loved these Louboutin heels, just their classic pump, but I didn't want to buy them because they were real leather. And so I found a company that made something kind of similar, but their shipping was really expensive. They were out of Australia and the shipping was like $50 for each pair of shoes. Mm. And I thought, that's crazy. And I thought, why don't I just start my own line of shoes? You've been, yeah. you know, I've been doing basically that. I'm in retail. It can't be that hard. So it was, you know, it was one of those things where it wasn't like months of thought or anything. I just thought this kind of seems like the next logical step. Let's let's try it. What do I have to lose? So I had sold my, um, online store at that point and was kind of looking for like, what am I going to do? So I had the, the money from that. And, um, a friend, family friend, uh, knew someone who was in the shoe industry, uh, in shoe production. And so they knew of factories, um, this was in China. And so because it came off of their recommendation and they had been in the business so long, um, my first collection I made with this particular factory and and they were able to work with me with a really small run I did only uh, I think 500 pairs and it was 10 different colors of shoes so it was like like 48 pairs of each each style which is like really low I mean a, a lot of companies will not work with that small of a uh, order so that was sort of just my test to see is there even any demand for this do people care if it's vegan or is the vegan community too small and I found that no they were they were kind of dying for something like this it's particularly vegans were looking for kind of fashionable stuff it tended to be either flats or or, or really I don't want to say hippie styles but just like sure. not high fashion kind of styles and like I said the only options are these unintentionally vegan things where the quality isn't great so my focus was really on like 
let's not change the style of like what a designer shoe would look like. There's particular things that my eye sees like in the heel, in the arch, in the vamp, like just the way it's cut, how much toe cleavage there is, like very little <laughs> things that I think cheaper shoes don't have. Um, so I paid attention to that. I made sure the box was really beautiful. The packaging was beautiful. You know, I feel like it should feel like a gift, even if you're buying it for yourself. When you receive that package, it, there should be an unveiling and it should be like this fun little ritual of like, I got myself a little gift. So I paid attention to those things and, and the reaction was, was really great. Um, particularly from the vegan community and vegan celebrities because they, they weren't able to find things like that. Magazines came without me even trying because they would have, you know, cover shoots with, celebrities who were vegan and didn't want to wear leather and there were limited choices. Um, and then money kind of ran out ah. <laughs> at some point. <laughs> so as it happens and I'm, you know, I don't particularly want to go to anyone else One, it's really important, um, for me to be at least fully female owned, if that means another female will be a partner, but I kind of grew up in a home where in a family where a lot of people are entrepreneurs and it's just like own your own if you can't do it yourself then don't do it wait until you can get the money to do it yourself um so that obviously creates a lot of problems it makes struggles that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise but like I even in my personal life don't like to have any kind of debt um so I just try to find ways to build without having to get money from anybody else so at that point I kind of ran low on money. I didn't really want to borrow anything. I also had been living in LA a couple of years and I was seeing maybe I want to be a stylist. I always wanted to do that. So I took a bit of a break. I was still running the company, but I didn't do any new collections. Okay. And Wait, can I, I'm going to, I'm going to pause yeah. you there. Cause I feel like there's a lot of questions I want to ask. From oh, sorry. Beginning. Yeah. No, 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 no. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to go just, on and on. <laughs> yeah, no, which is great. But like, I'm like, wait, I want to, I want to ask a little bit more about this part. So, so okay. just quick recap, you like started selling stuff on eBay in college. Mm -hmm. Um, that generated some revenue, turned into a boutique from mm -hmm. a space that your dad purchased for college housing in Arizona. That turned into mm -hmm. a L.A. boutique. You sold that, used that money to invest in launching a first small collection of about 500 uh, pieces of, of inventory mm -hmm. across multiple colors. And you got a really good reaction off of that. But like, where did that reaction even come from? How were you like that first collection that you just dove in and you purchased those 500 pairs of shoes? How mm -hmm. did you I mean, you said magazines were coming to you, but like you had to have been doing something to even like literally the only thing I did was Instagram. Just really? Instagram. They just, just with the hashtags of like vegan, vegan fashion, vegan bloggers. I don't even think now when I look at what I'm doing now with this new collection, I wasn't doing even a small percentage of what I could have been doing. They just would find me. I, I just, I was just testing it because it was only one style. So I knew this is limiting, but they would just find it from the hashtags and they were just so excited because there was nothing like that that was like focused on being cruelty-free, vegan, luxury, wow. you know, all these things that were kind of missing. Yeah. So it happened really organically. And had I had enough extra money for marketing, I don't know what I could have done. But at that time, it was just like, I was just like, can I make this work? And really, my original plan was um, to wholesale it. And I did sell to three or four stores. I think two of them were in Europe and it was just like a headache. It was, mm. you know, when they're small stores, you know, and I understand that because I had a store. So I was really, and they came to me too. I didn't go looking for them. They just found me and they were stores that were trying to make a sustainable stuff and mm. ethical fashion and things like that. And, um, it's just, you know, when you're a small store, if there's a little flaw, if the price of the shipping is too high, th there's always some complaint. And I understand it, but I, I wasn't a big enough company to be able to accommodate all these little things. So mm. it just became not worth it. Like okay. it, there, I, w when I shipped one of the problems, I shipped some shoes to Germany. The I used a new tissue paper when I sent it. And I think from, you know, the the wet, the conditions, maybe moisture and stuff, it ended up dyeing the backs of some of the shoes. So I had to like, I'm not going to have them send it back. Right. So I had to like refund that whole thing. So I lost all that money oh sending all that all the way to Germany. Yeah. yeah. So after that, I was just like, I, you know, until I get to a point where I can really do it or it's some huge company like Zappos coming, it just wasn't the right 
choice. You know, it's just too hard. So, okay. So then direct to consumer started making more sense, but, Mm -hmm. but I think like for people listening, I think, and even for me, I'm like, okay, so you, you produce 500 pieces of inventory. It goes Mm -hmm. off exceptionally well, just from using Instagrams or hashtags on Instagram, Mm -hmm. which sounds like a dream come true. But then you mention like, ah, okay, now I don't have any money to keep going. So I think it, it, there can be some misconceptions and misunderstandings about like how much it really costs to run a fashion brand, whether it's shoes or clothes. And how mm-hmm. can you have a first collection that goes off so well, so easily with magazines wanting to cover you and stores mm-hmm. wanting to stock your inventory and the vegan community dying to have your product, but then run out of money? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, there's just so many costs involved in in just running your business, obviously. I mean, storage alone, storing everything. I wasn't using a logistics company this round. I'm uh, when the right now we're in a pre-sale period, but when everything's in stock in November, it's going to be my first time using uh, a 3PL company. So we'll we'll see how that goes. If that's better, it seems you know I've crunched the numbers. It seems like it's worth it instead of paying for storage and having to go get it out of storage and having somebody pack and ship it. And a lot of this stuff I'm doing myself, I don't have a ton of help. It's Mm -hmm. like I contract people to help with marketing and things like that now, but the day-to-day stuff is me and you you can only do so much in a day. So, um, yeah, it's just, you, you really have to, I think I, what I learned from that first round is you have to have the money for like a year in advance and, and plan for the problems or it's just, you start to build momentum and then it just stops. And mm. what that's really depressing <laughs> when it yeah. stops. And so, you know, this round, so I took about a year off and kind of tried other things, doing styling and all that. And I'm glad I did. I got that out of my system, but it, it made gave me the fire back for this because as I was around fashion so much and seeing what was missing and seeing what I could create, Um, it made me want to go back and do it. So my plan this round in August is what we did was I thought, let me do a pre-sale through a, um, crowdfunding campaign through Indiegogo is how we were going to do it. Um, so I met, spent months studying how that works. (laughs) (laughs) What's the right way to do it? I had a little bit of savings left. I had, I had started a, um, lifestyle management company, basically Uh assisting people. So I was just putting money away every month. I was not going out, wasn't doing anything. So during that year that I was kind of working for other people, I was just like, I'm going to figure out the next move here. Um, and so I spent all the time, prepared everything, listened to every podcast about crowdfunding, every (laughs) article. Um, I hired someone to help me with the marketing, um, kind of an important thing with that is gaining emails so that you can market to them once the campaign starts. And it was, it was fairly easy to, um, get a, 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 um, focused target because we knew they were vegan. We knew they would be women. We knew what age range. So it was kind of easy to target to them, but it was very costly. It costs like almost $11,000 for, um, about six weeks of Facebook ads, um, to target and gain people's emails. And I hired someone to help me build the actual crowdfunding page. And we made, I hired a videographer to make a video and get content and redid the logo and all this stuff. And then the day that we were to launch that we'd spent all this time. I've spent all these emails and videos and all that. Nobody could figure out how to place an order. Oh, (laughs) wait, this this is on Indiegogo. You spent all this money to launch the campaign. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then this was for the second collection, which we, we just did in August. Okay. August of 2018. Yes. And we're talking now in October. So, okay. Right. Okay. So So all that money, all that time. And it was a beautiful, campaign page and then nobody understood how to do it because it's not like a a website where you like place an order and there's a drop down menu and all that it's like kind of looks like you're making a donation and then you're getting something in return I don't know how many people have done experience was so unclear that they just they didn't know what to do no idea and I got all these complaints and people (laughs) people, (laughs) you know they had been waiting we had been doing like a countdown for this you know I built up my you know like 8,000 more Instagram followers just for this purpose of this email list of thousands of emails. And here we go. And they couldn't buy. (laughs) Yeah. 
So I, by myself, the day of the launch, had to rebuild my entire website and oh my God. push everybody to that. So luckily, it still worked out. It was still a, not as successful as I would have liked because I think the sense of urgency that would have come from the Indiegogo campaign and the potential for that to go viral, we could have been much more successful. Yeah. But I was hoping to cover the costs of production, and I was able to do that. So you know, it, it ended up working out, but it was, I was hoping to make enough, sell 2000 pairs and be able to have money for the whole year. Like I was saying, to be prepared. So it's like, you really in business, you have to expect the unexpected. You have to ha have a plan B, C, D, E, F to Z. <laughs> and, and, you know, you can't freak out. I've learned not to be super emotional. Um, I take time every day to just cry at my desk for five minutes and then <laughs> carry on. <laughs> So, so, um, so, but I, I do think that's how we're always going to do it. I'm going to do, we're, we're already prepping a new collection. So this, the second collection right now is in production. So that's what was in August, 2018 that we did the pre-sale, which lasted about 38 days. Now we're in production. They'll be in stock in November. Okay. And then by the end of October 2018, we'll have a new collection to start a pre-sale. So I'll always be overlapping kind of the pre-sale with a new collection that's actually in stock. Okay. And, and Indiegogo like works similar to Kickstarter in that people pledge the money and then it's they pre-order and then the product mm -hmm. is delivered later and that gives you the funds up front to cover the production right. costs. Yeah. And you can choose to do it. Well, I didn't end up doing it with this. I ended up doing from the website and that's how I'll always do it now is just directly oh, from gotcha. the website. Yeah. Right. But, but it, that's not, you know, just for general information, it is a great way, especially if you're a new business and it, you're something unique, it's a great way to get exposure and kind of target people. But there is a lot of preparation with that. It's not something you just like throw together and, yeah. you know, you really have to do your research before you do it. But yeah, but yeah you, you can choose to do like a goal. And if you don't reach the goal, then the campaign gets canceled. You don't ship the items. And the GoGo is right. the only one that does that. It's called flexible um, okay. funding. Okay. Um, or you can do fixed where um i'm sorry flexible is if you don't reach the goal you still get the money you you can find a small uh, raised right right okay right. okay so but you had a little user experience difficulty on the day of mm -hmm. so you quickly diverted to getting people on your own website to genuinely place a let's just say air quotes pre-order mm -hmm. where it felt like a normal experience where like i'm buying the pair of shoes they're just not going to ship for two months Right. It just okay. shows a ship date of a future ship date. Yeah. Okay, and gotcha. I made it clear everywhere. So nobody's disappointed and they understand that yeah. it's, you know, you're not going to get it right away. And then are you going with the same factory that you had before because you had everything lined up? Because I know. Oh, that, no. Like, OK. Logistics of getting you said now they're going to ship in November. Like that's a really fast turnaround. So yeah. I imagine you worked on some of those logistics beforehand. Yeah. So in that, in that time that I was kind of doing styling and working and figuring out, you know, I did have the thought, obviously I didn't want to let go of the shoes. I had built it up. It was still my baby. So I was looking into, you know, how would I do this differently? And one of the things was the factory. It wasn't that that other factory was bad. They were, they were actually really amazing and it was great. They could work with me, but they had some limitations. Like they couldn't do flats for me for some reason. Mm. Um, and just, you know, if I wanted to do things with like embellishments, they couldn't do it. So I was like, I, you know, I don't want to have five different factories. So I've got to find one that can accommodate what I want to do. One, two, I really wanted one that I knew was ethical, that I knew treated their employees well, that could work with the vegan aspect of it, mm -hmm. that the glues were vegan, not a simple thing. And, um, and I happened to find one that was also female owned which wow. was just like I was like okay this is like <laughs> there's no way we're going anywhere else and it was a really reputable factory they work with really huge brands so I knew I was in good hands and I went back to that friend of the family friend um and they knew of the factory and all that and they have like sort of a vetting system and you can kind of keep track so I know I'm in good hands and they and they've been incredible especially with like samples and understanding that I'm growing and like working with me and not charging for certain things and just being like, we want to help you build. And, you know, the old factory was like that too. They've, they've, you know, one thing I would love to talk about is that the misconceptions of making things in China, I think it yeah. just has like such a bad rap and, and people sometimes email me and, and ask, where is it made? And I used to just answer China, you know, or I'd say Dongguan in China, it's a, shoe capital of the world for manufacturing and um 
they're immediately turned off. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, one, a lot of those things that you think are made in Italy aren't. They're made in China and then they're (laughs) shipped to Italy to put the logo on or some last piece. And you think it's made in China. You know, there aren't like beautiful Italian women (laughs) in gowns making your stuff in Italy and it's all sweatshops in China. It's just like such a terrible misconception. And they're on the cutting edge of technology. Um, They're this area of China that I get mine made is, is a shoe capital. I mean, the majority of shoes in the world are made there. And I happened to find one that was female owned. They're really involved in the community. They do things for the community. So it's just like so sad when people are so quick to just be like, no, absolutely not. It's like, if you want your products at a fair price, that's why you're paying $900 for the Italian shoes because it just can't be done cheap enough for you to think it's an affordable price. So if you want things quickly, if we want to stay with trends, I'm not doing one collection, you know, twice a year. So if people want trendy things that are coming, you know, every couple of months, this is what we have to do. And as long as you find an ethical factory and you find a a place that can work with you, I, I don't understand why people have all these terrible thoughts about China. No, I'm, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up actually, because I have been on a panel as a speaker sort of defending Mm -hmm. overseas manufacturing. Yeah. Um, And I think that it's, I'm really, really glad you brought it up because I think that, listen, there are unethical factories in China. There are also unethical factories in LA and New York. So it's not about where, it's about what's like really going on behind the scenes and certain places and certain facilities in certain locations are better at some things than others. And so I'm really glad you brought that point up. Can you, like, where did you find them? Did you just do like a deep dive into the rabbit hole of Google? I, I went through Alibaba and found several different factories and kind of interviewed them. And then I went back to that family friend and kind of was like, do you know anything about this factory, this factory, this one, this particular one had worked with, bigger brands and so I felt a little more comfortable with that one and then when he knew about them too and I was able to get to know stuff about the factory they get video tours they have certification like I just felt like I'm comfortable with this one the way they're working with me it's all women they understand me they're helpful they're trying to help me build it was just like the right one to go with you know you I think a lot of stuff is intuition too like you just can tell this is the right fit Okay, but you vet, you initially like sort of dug into Alibaba because I think Alibaba has like hot and cold reputation too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, I wouldn't have gone just trusted them for sure. Right. You know, you don't know for sure. But I because I was lucky enough to have a source that could kind of find out for me. I also had an I also had another girlfriend that was in uh, footwear production working for Halston, uh-huh. and so she knew of them too. Okay. Um. So I just felt like all right. This is coming with recommendations. We can trust this. Okay. So you got through like all the prototypes and the sampling and got everything dialed Mm -hmm. in and then Mm -hmm. you launched and now you're turning the production around pretty quickly. And then is that kind of your cycle of like pre-sale? Yeah. So I'm going to see, this is the first time we're doing it. So it it feels like this is the right way to go because I think building that excitement with the pre-sale is really good. And I get a lot of feedback and, you know, like this round I had six, styles and I did in several colors it came out to 19 different color styles but I ended up only going into production for 16 because three of them just the sales weren't strong enough and I'm like it's not worth it plus it gives me a little time for me to wear the shoes see how they fit are they comfortable is this heel high right so it's it's nice I don't get stuck we hope I don't get stuck with a bunch of inventory Yeah, yeah yeah and the feedback is really important that's a beautiful thing about social media is in real time you get to know like what's working and what's not Yes. Is that so? Are you mainly selling and communicating on social media and email? It mm-hmm. sounds like. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Email marketing is a, a big part of it. And yeah. yeah, now that I've built a, um, because of that, that was the one valuable thing, even though it didn't work out with the Indiegogo. <laughs> we spent so much money getting those targeted emails that it's actually something I'd like to do again, um, mm. doing the targeted emails where they, as opposed to just getting them to come and kind of follow the page, we get the email because then we can do repeat. Um, marketing to them so yeah so that that sorry go ahead no go ahead I was just saying that worked out 
Okay. Can you talk a little bit about some of the email marketing strategies that you're using? Because I think it's really easy to think like, okay, everybody's saying to gather the emails, but then it's like, what do I say in an email? I can't just sell all the time. Um, Have you really started some strategic campaigns or what are you thinking about that stuff? Yeah, I actually, I had um, somebody that was specifically more on the analytics side of the emails and sort of it's, she's who helped do the marketing for the Facebook and all that. Um, and so I learned some tricks here and there. Um, now I just hired somebody new to do the design of the emails and everything because it's, it's overwhelming for me to have to do that, especially I want two to go out a week and I do want it more of a newsletter form. Mm -hmm. So I've started doing it, but I haven't been consistent right now. The focus has been on production. Um, but I would say, yeah, especially for me, since, since we have the cruelty free aspect, putting things in, I've been doing, you know, like looks for less kind of things like celebrities wearing similar shoes and here's the vegan version or, um, you know, like vegan news mixed in there, you know, the, um, like Tom Ford stopped using fur Mm -hmm. in this last fashion week. So that was a big deal. So, you know, doing emails that include that kind of information. So it's, it's informative and we do a little bit of selling this, this period has been so much focused on the pre-sale. So that's mostly been what's been in the emails, but moving forward, I want it to be more newsletter style. So it's like, there's a reason to open it more than just a coupon code. Sure. Um, Education, things that your audience cares about. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, I know we chatted briefly before we hit record. Um, You're doing some college affiliate stuff. Talk about what's going on with that. Yeah, we've just started that. So I, I don't even have a lot to tell you okay. about that. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. We just started it, the, the program. So I haven't even seen what that's going to do yet. Okay. Can, like, can you just explain a little bit about how you think oh, it's going to yeah. work? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, and it's going to be not even limited to college. We're starting with college uh, affiliates. But um, once the shoes are actually in stock, I want to do the same thing with just bloggers and influencers. So it's just an affiliate program where um, they sign up, um, they can put their social media links and um, through, it's called Affiliately. uh, Through Affiliately, it creates either links or banners and um, we set up coupon codes, whatever we decide for that particular, particular affiliate. And they can text it to their friends. They can tell their friends, they can post it on their blog, put it on their Instagram. And every time there's a sale that comes from the code, that code that's specific to them, um, they get either a dollar amount or a percentage of that. And it holds it in sort of an account for them. And once they reach a certain level, then it deposits in their account. So it's like, especially for college girls, I think it's a great way in within sororities and things like that, where they have a lot of events and um, both to spread awareness about the option of vegan fashion and, um, you know, bring brand awareness as well at the same time. And they make extra money. It brings awareness for us and within this little microcosm of colleges. And then same thing with influencers and bloggers. It's just a way for us to build a relationship and um, grow together. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So I'll be curious to see how that takes off for you. Um, But really cool idea to initiate early on. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about some of the like more sustainable and vegan focused angle with your brand? Because one of the things that I've talked to other people on the show about is, you know, and it's interesting because you kind of brought it up earlier where some people in their heart of hearts made in the USA is this an insanely big value and something that they want to support, but then they can go into production and then they can find that their customer either doesn't care that much or they're not willing to pay that much, or Mm -hmm. they just haven't educated them appropriately. Um, And so I'm curious to know with your sustainable angle being vegan and, you know, you're working with this ethical factory while they happen to be in China, that doesn't really matter. At least in your mind and my mind. Um, So, you know, how much do you feel like you have had to do education for your customer to get them to care? Or did you just fall into an audience that already cares so passionately that it was just a plug and play? Yeah, I think everybody has this order of things that are important to them, right? Like for me, obviously, just ethical and moral is at the top. I mean, I'm a business owner. I understand the realities of this business and fashion and that you could easily be doing things that go against your moral compass when it comes to production. So that for me is top of the line. And then 
Second to that is that I want to make sure nothing is using any kind of animal products. And then third to that is I would love for it to support women and empower women in some way. So like as a customer, they have their own order. Maybe the vegan aspect is more important to them than the ethical as far as towards humans. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very possible. I don't yeah. know. So, <laughs> so I have to do it. I have to do it the way that I feel comfortable as far as, I don't get the question that much of where it's made. And now I've just learned when I do get the question, let me give a little more of a thorough answer and educate them a little bit because mm. they don't know. When If you're not in this business, you don't know. You just have these misconceptions. It's just, you know, what the media is telling you or what you've heard or whatever. And of course, I would love if I could do it in the USA, it would be just better because quicker turnaround, I could be much more hands-on with it. It's not that I'm opposed to it. It's just... Sometimes that's not possible. You can't you can't check mark everything that you need to do. Yeah. I saw an episode of um, Shark Tank once, and that was actually this guy had this great idea. I can't remember what the product was. It was something within farming, I think. And he was so gung ho about the made in America, and he was having to because it couldn't even be all manufactured in one place. He was having the different parts made in different parts of America and then shipping it to this one town he lives in. Cause he was so wanted to build up his own town, which is admirable and beautiful, but it was making the cost so high that he was making no money. He was doing all this work and making no money. And yes, it's bringing business, but if your business then ends up failing, then all those people are going to lose your, their jobs in this town that you want to build up. So the sharks, all of them thought it was a great idea, but they were like, unless you agree to do it overseas, this, you might as well just fire everybody now. It's not going to happen. And he couldn't get it through his head. So it's like, sometimes we have to get out of our own way of like, you can't have everything and build it enough to then you have the power to do what you really want to do. And so like, if that means I become big enough that then I can have a factory in LA, fantastic. I would love that. (laughs) But at this point I have to do it the way that I have to do it in order to keep the prices fair, in order to have the turnaround time I need, in order to get the materials I need. So it's just like, those are decisions we have to make as business people. Yeah. And I think that like, you just have to kind of choose your battles. And and Mm -hmm. if if you can educate your customer or they're already educated and they care enough to opt in at that price point that you know whatever that means then that can work but like I've I've just heard so many people say like kind of like the farm guy you mentioned you know to me it mattered so much that it was made in the U.S. but then the cost was three times as much and my customer they just didn't care they weren't willing to pay that price or I didn't let them know why this was a better option enough to the point to get them to care which it's also hard to change people's opinions on that to sort of change their minds um so you're you're kind of just doing a balance of like, you know, what makes sense and then also what is really important to you. But Yeah, business, you just have to accept yeah. you're not going to please everybody and yeah. just like you have your ethos, you have your core beliefs. Stick to that as much as you can. The people that appreciate that will find you, yeah. I think. And, you know, that applies to your personal life and your business life. It's just <laughs> like do your best. And, and if you can't get to those you know, like I said, that guy, that, that was beautiful. He was like tearing up talking about wanting to build his hometown, but it's like, what's the point you're letting that get in the way of the reality of the situation. Yeah. Very, very true. Um, okay. So you have, um, your first, your second collection, I suppose. Mm -hmm. The first one was back in 2014 ish. 15. Yes. Okay. Yes. 14. Okay. And then you took some time off, worked some other jobs, Mm -hmm. saved some money, really figured out what you wanted to do. Now you're relaunching. Mm -hmm. Um, and direct to consumer only this time? Yes, for okay. now. Okay. Uh, my long term plan is to do it, but with bigger companies, collaborations hopefully would be in the future. But for now, I want to get the product perfect and really understand my customer and then, then move into that. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and so then you're planning to do another round of pre-sales you said starting in November. Yeah, we should have the, yeah, we should have the new samples by early November. So right around the time that the, this collection that's in production is in stock, physically in stock, we would be running a pre-sale at the same time. And I would run a much shorter pre-sale last time. It was 38 days. This time we'll probably do it for three weeks. Okay. And then the production time is around 40 days, 40 to 60 days. It depends. So then it would be a little quicker. Why the shorter pre-sale? 
I just don't want people to wait as long. <laughs> this last time I wanted to give it more time. Well, the, the last time, because it was through a, um, originally supposed to be through a crowdfunding campaign, they usually give a suggested time of run the campaign for at least 30 to 40 days. Okay. So I was kind of going off of that. So this time it's just like, you know, you, we're in Amazon culture. We want, <laughs> we want the stuff with two day delivery. So yeah. I think it's hard to wait. <laughs> I mean, that was literally going to be my next question. I'm like, how are you finding that people are reacting to, well, actually I have two questions now on this. One is how are you finding that people are reacting to, you know, purchasing it and then not getting it for two months? Did you get some kickback on that? I haven't. I hope I don't. I mean, we're down to it coming in. So I had, there's been a couple of people that have just checked in on like, when's the date, but they're just like, I'm so excited. I can't wait to get it. I think because I'm, I managed their expectations from the start of like, mm. it will be in stock in mid November. So they okay. kind of knew. And the incentive of buying during the pre-sale that I didn't mention is that it's really discounted. So it's okay. 40% off at the beginning. I, I did for the first three days, we did 40% off. And then after that, it was around 30% off. And then it kind of, the discount got less and less as we got closer. So right now they're at full price. Okay. They're Okay. price and it's just free shipping so gotcha yes and how are you dealing with like because something for me personally shopping um mm -hmm. buying shoes online is a little bit scary unless i know the brand i know how it fits because i can wear mm -hmm. anything from like a six and a half to an eight so oh, wow <laughs> yeah is that weird <laughs> no i mean i've heard that but it's just, like i'm always a true eight so i don't know but wh what do you find is it just different styles of shoes that do I that mean, yeah, that's a like, big range it is a big range um and arguably an eight it happens very rarely but definitely a mm -hmm. six and a half to a seven and a half um mm -hmm. from like a tennis shoe like a running shoe or something to mm -hmm. a flat to a sandal um, and so I'm just curious to know, did you, did, did people in your audience have any reservation from sort of buying from a, a new unknown brand that mm -hmm. a shoe is kind of a hard thing? I mean, to me, it feels like a hard thing to fit, but maybe, maybe I'm alone in this. I don't think you're alone, but I think <laughs> most people know pretty much what they are, but no, I definitely got questions of like, you know, I'm sometimes a seven and a half, sometimes an eight. What yeah. do you think? Yeah. And like, from an open toe shoe to a closed toe, it's a different fit. Um, I did have a size guide and I encouraged people like email me if you need help with that. Okay. Like, we'll find you the right size. And then I do, we also offer exchanges. So if it doesn't fit, you know, I'm hoping there's not too many because obviously the point of the pre-sale is like getting the right sizes and having the right stock and all that and not, right. you know, having exactly what people ordered. But, um, no, we're, we're pretty true to size as far as these styles this time go and, you know, with open-toed shoes, you usually go on the smaller side, and with closed-toe, you want a little extra space. And we have the the shoe chart, so okay. Hopefully, so uh, hopefully works. everybody. Okay. Will be okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, based off of the pre-sale numbers, in terms of you know how many units you sold or how much money you raised, how did you mm -hmm. figure out and if you want to share exact numbers, you can. If not, you can just give a general bar park, ballpark or idea. But, like, how did you figure out how much overage beyond that to buy to compensate for orders that would then trickle in between now and then and, and once the product was in stock? Ask me that again. How did I figure? So what? let's say you did your pre-sale and you you got 500 shoe orders or a thousand shoe orders, or I don't know how mm -hmm. many. And then you thought, okay, did you order exactly 500 or a thousand? Or did you say, you know what, I'm going to order 750 or I'm going to order 1500. How much overage did you decide to maybe invest in so that you would have some stock to fulfill orders that are coming in, let's say right now, or orders that come in once the product is actually in inventory? Mm -mm, okay. Um, well, I still had a minimum with the factory, so I knew I had to minimally order a thousand pairs of shoes. Okay. And I had, they let me break it down in different colors and things like that, but it had to be at least a thousand. I ended up ordering a little over a thousand just okay. to make the numbers work. Um, and without going into how many I actually sold, you know, it's sure. a little over, it's over. So I, you know, I have enough to, that we're going to still sell stuff and there's time to still sell things here, but I'm also prepared since we have the new pre-sale coming, if we ran out, like it'll be a pretty quick turnaround that there'll be a new collection in. Okay. Gotcha. And did you, um, did you go like, is the fit and the silhouette the same and you just changed colors so that the factory can use the same molds and forms across? Yeah. Okay. Most of the, well, all the heels are the same. Um, so we didn't change the heels much on, um, I think two, 
there's only two different heels because there's one that's a shorter one. Um, so there's a kind of a high pump and the heel on that one also got used on like the sandals, for instance. Okay. And then as far as the sandals go, like the base of the sandal, the sole part of it is the same. We just changed the upper. So I kind of, I, and I tried to do that in this new collection that's coming too. Like I want to reuse as many, it cuts costs that way to not right. have to be right. Right. So as many times as I can, you know, you, you go crazy when you're coming up with ideas too. It's like, I want to do a million different things, but I try to like, let's see how much we can use the same material, how much we can use the same like buckles, same heels all that you know because there are obviously minimums it's going to get your costs to go up if you have to buy a bunch of different components yeah but i think that's an important point to make because i think that sometimes what um people see who may be new to the industry Mm -hmm. look at it and they think everything has to be designed brand new from scratch season after season collection after collection launch Mm -hmm. after launch however your business model is arranged but i think there's so much value in sort of mixing and matching some of those components and then rerunning proven styles maybe just introducing a new color or a new you know zebra print versus cheetah print or something like that because like you said it cuts your costs in terms of Mm -hmm. development with the factory and cuts timelines and just saves so much effort and money and also I mean just customers have loyalty to certain styles if they like a certain style and so really of all the styles I did only um two are what I considering the holiday collection where I don't really plan to make them again unless they end up wildly popular. They're they're just special styles for the holidays. They're a little more embellished. Uh-huh. But the other ones I call the essentials collection. So they are styles I'll keep making just in new fabrics and prints yes. and things like that. And it's just, you know, like a basic sandal, one strap, minimal sandal, a basic pump. Like we're always going to need those things. And the more colors, the better, you know, women love to buy several colors of something that they like. So, right. um, yeah, I've always called them like, those are like, either your essentials or your core styles that you introduce in new colors. And maybe you eventually introduce like a variation of, but they're kind of the bread and butter. Some of these really fun things to design is not where you make a lot of the money. I think that's a misconception. No, and I obviously that's what I would love to do all day is just do like the kind of interesting different stuff that nobody else is doing. But I learned that from having a boutique is that's the stuff that stays on the shelf. You can you can mix that in a little yeah. bit, but don't that's not your core. That's not where you're gonna Yeah, we make that mistake. You get really excited, especially in, in owning a boutique in the buying, like you're like, Oh, everybody's gonna love this magenta <laughs> one of this. And then it's like But I did I will say that um I did a leopard print shoe it was actually cheetah which is a different print yes um in (laughs) one of the essential styles and that one was so popular that i ended up adding a leopard one and those have been the most popular over black and nude so so sometimes there's a wild card hey if you look in my closet leopard is a neutral so i get i say that too i say that too leopard is a neutral literally i own so many things sometimes my husband sometimes i'm like oh wait i can't like literally, we were like wearing underwear bra, leopard underwear, leopard bra, <laughs> leopard socks, and then black boots, and then like it's, there's so much happening. It's a neutral. It it's totally really, neutral. It really is. Really, <laughs> no. I think everyone has it. In, so I made sure in this new collection, I do two yes. more leopards. Like I'm like, okay, apparently everybody loves leopard. Yeah, as much they as really, me. Not, they really do. They really. It's do. not just me and Peg Bundy. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was such a flashback. I had the mo- most amazing visual right That's there. What I always think of like, leopard is her leopard leggings and like the little mules and stuff so yeah oh we'll have to put a picture of her in the show notes alongside your shoes that's great um that is so great uh bb this has been so much fun to chat with you i'd love to end with the question i ask everybody at the end of the interview um Mm -hmm. and that is what is one thing people never ask you about working in the fashion industry that you wish they would Mm. um what do they ask me Well, I'll say this. One question I get that actually surprises me is, um, how did you do this? I think when you're doing it, when you're doing it, you just, you know, it's your life. So you're just like, even if things are hard, I just got to do this. I'll figure it out. But when people who don't work in the fashion industry and they have some sort of corporate job or something, you know, my friends might come by the office and see the collection. You just see like this amazement and pride of like, how did you do this? Like, how is it possible? So that's, I've been getting that a lot this time doing the collection, I think. And 
that kind of is also what keeps me going. Like when you, you know, you don't applaud yourself enough. And when somebody comes around and has like amazement at what you've achieved, that really is what keeps you going. Yeah. But I also think it's fair to look at like where you've come from. I mean, it didn't mm-hmm. have, you didn't have this idea last month. Yeah. But you can be hard on yourself. You know, you just think like, well, I'm not where I wanted to be. Or like I have, as everyone has like so many failures along the way, but it's like, Sometimes when you see somebody else, it's like, oh, yeah, I guess I am doing a pretty good job. I guess this isn't so easy. <laughs> so Yeah, I've been talking to some people recently about this concept of like some of us like super, you know, type A driven overachiever mm-hmm. people, whatever bucket you want to put us in. Um mm-hmm. We're really, really good at always feeling like we're never doing enough. We're not working Mm -hmm. hard enough. Things should be growing faster. And it Mm -hmm. is good to kind of have that, like, slap in the face of, like, no, look at what you've built. Like, you've made something. And you should step back and, like, give yourself a pat on the back for that. doesn't mean you get to stop working. (laughs) No, no. It doesn't mean you're going to – I'm going to stop my five-minute crying every day at my desk. But Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) You have to – that's the balance is, like – you know, with that, what do you learn from your successes? Really, you learn everything from your failures. So it's like you you have to look back and know, like I'm gonna get where I want to get, and all those obstacles are getting me closer. And that's when I'm on that yacht off the Amalfi Coast one day. Yeah. Then I'll know it was all worth it. All the all the mistakes, all yeah. the obstacles. I yeah. mean, look at what you learned from the Indiegogo snafu. It's like, oh, yeah. hey, you know what? You scrambled, you figure out a quick solution, and you learned how to do it better next time. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. I love that. Um, where can everybody find you and connect with you online? So Instagram, we are at Cult of Coquette, C-U-L-T-O-F-C-O-Q-U-E-T-T-E. And the website is cultofcoquette.com. And then there's also a Facebook page, um, which would be the backslash and then Cult of Coquette. Um, Those are the best ways. Instagram, we're pretty active on there. So you can see new styles and see people's reviews on there and and questions and all that. And you can also um, reach us through email, cultofcoquette at gmail.com. Okay. And what is Coquette? Can you tell us a little bit about what that name means? Oh, yeah. Coquette in French. Um, I have an obsession with just French stuff. I'm I'm Persian, so in our culture, there's a lot of French words, too. My my boutique was called collage, too, so I've always had something French mixed (laughs) in the fashion stuff. Um, Coquette is a flirty, sexy, strong woman. And I just thought, you know, that fits perfectly. I had heard... um, Kareen Reutfeld, she, she used to be the editor of French Vogue, Carl Lagerfeld called her that. And I thought, you know, she always wears these like power suits and high heels. And like, she represents kind of what that is, like this strong woman who's in control, but she's still flirty and sexy. And, and I think our shoes are like that. And, and it just represents the woman I hope is buying our shoes and, and where we are right now, too, yeah. just as far as empowerment and strength and all that. Yes, we need it. Awesome. Yes. I love that. Well, thank you for sharing. Yeah. Thank you so much. Of course. I really appreciate um, all of your great insights and, and all the knowledge that you've shared with everybody out there listening. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you again so much, BB, And thank you so much to my husband, Mark, who handles all of the tech and editing and makes this show possible. I'd also like to give a big, huge shout out to my right-hand SFD team member, Saya, who makes sure that each episode gets published and delivered to you on time every week. And as always, thank you so much to you out there for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. If you haven't yet, we'd be so grateful if you'd leave a review uh, on iTunes. You can do that anytime at sfdnetwork.com slash review or just scroll down where you're listening on iTunes right now. Last, if you'd like to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this interview, check out the show notes wherever you're listening. Thanks so much, and I'll talk to you in the next Successful Fashion Designer Podcast episode.